the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. You're listening to, although Dave is not here today, this is Kim Hammer, State Representative, sitting in for Dave at his request this this afternoon. And he is uh, off enjoying a little time with his granddaughter at her graduation. And so he asked me to step up this afternoon. J.R. Davis with the governor's office will be in here momentarily, and we'll have about an hour to discuss items with him. Uh, I was checking with Russ. We think this is the first time that a legislator and uh, J.R. have sat on the opposite sides of the desk to talk about issues that are relevant to Arkansans. And so look forward to a, uh, to a good discussion about several items that are on the list for today. If you want to call into the show today, you can call into 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. Again, this is Kim Hammer sitting in for Dave Ellswick, who is off enjoying his granddaughter's graduation. We hope that he gets a little R&R. will be back Monday morning fired up and ready to go. One thing we want to remind you is this coming Saturday is the uh, Car Expo that they have been talking about on the radio uh, this past week. Joe and Duck were on the radio talking about it coming up this Saturday. If you have a car that you would like to put in, uh, you can start checking your car in at 7 o'clock Saturday morning, and that's going to be at the Conway Expo Center. And uh, all the proceeds are going to benefit the Ronald McDonald House. So we would encourage you to, uh, if you're in the Conway area, you want to make a day trip uh, to enjoy looking at some real classic automobiles and uh, just supporting a good cause that you go out to the Conway Expo Center. That would be this Saturday. Check-in for the cars is at 7 o'clock till, uh, I think, a little bit before 10, and then the show is actually going to be from 10 to 2. Again, you want to call in today, call in to 501-823-0965. At 3 o'clock, from 3 to about 3.45, we're going to have Misha Martin, who's the director of DCFS in the, uh, in the room, and we're going to visit about some issues and about some updates and what's going on with DCFS, and that will be going on from 3 to 3.45, and then we're going to have an uh, open time uh, from about 3.45 to 5 o'clock, and then uh, we'll replay the segment of JR and my discussion that will be going on here shortly when JR makes it into the studio. So we're glad that you're with us today. We hope that uh, at the end of the day you'll – Feel that the time has been well spent. A couple of the hot topics that are on the uh, on the table that have been discussed this past week, we're going to take a look at will be school safety with all the issues that are going on. And the governor's uh, unveiled his school safety plan. We'll be talking about that just a little bit. Uh, Department of Workforce Services working on the uh, Medicaid requirements and work requirements. We'll talk about that a little bit and talk about continuing uh, technical education about the gap and the need for that in the state and how we need to shore up and to uh, be able to put some focus on that in order to be competitive, uh, not only at the state level, but we need to be competitive at the national and actually at the world level as we need to get uh, individuals that can be trained to uh, provide some of the basic needs right now that we're having shortages in. Uh, We'll take a look at some of the discussion around the tax uh, packages or the tax discussion going on in the uh, tax task force, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit 
uh, about a public health meeting that will be coming up on Monday that uh, is relevant to uh, some topics that are in the in the newspaper. One thing I would like you to be thinking about, and um, this seems to be, uh, hey, JR's walked in the office or into the uh, into the uh, into wherever we are. Where are we, Jr.? We're, we're, in, we're in the throne room of day. That's it, right that there. So. Time, yeah. We're in the studio. So, uh, one thing I would like you to think about over the time we'll spend together this afternoon, and this just seems to have um, it continues to heighten and it continues to uh, seem to become something that's a forefront. At least what I've been thinking about is. Uh, the word hypocrisy. When you look at all the things that are going on, you look at all the statements, you uh, look at Roseanne and her having to, you know, give her apology uh, and then her show being canceled, which I understood that Fox picked it up, which that's, you know, that's a good thing, according to some things I saw. Hopefully that that's truth. Um, but when it comes to to dealing with hypocrisy uh, in our society today, uh, what I'd like you to think about doing is to call in and to uh, share what you identify as a issue of hypocrisy. Uh, you know, specifically, you can talk about in the political world uh, as far as these things that are going on at the national level, how that uh, people are expected to do something, but then, you know, you turn around, uh, say, for example, like ABC, you know, they, they expect Roseanne to resign, but yet you have issues where on the other side, they just seem to be turning a blind eye to it. And I'd like to just kind of get your input as far as what you see as identifiers of the hypocrisy that exists in our society today. And want to welcome Jr. into the studio. And uh, Jr. glad to have you here today. Good to be here. I'm sorry I'm running a little bit late. It's uh, It's been one of those weeks so far. Uh, lots lots going on, and sometimes I forget that, you know, it's not Wednesday, it's Thursday. <laughs> so. well, well, when you have a short week, which is a good thing. Yeah, we, we got We got Monday off when, we, right. uh, when we had a short week like we do today. I think everybody's still in, in catch-up mode, but uh, next week it'll be a five-day week. Uh, just a couple things maybe to talk to you about. Uh, and, and Russ and I were talking, I think this may be the first time that that you have sat with a legislator on this side of the mic, uh, at least in this studio format like this. So yeah. uh, I think it, hopefully it'll be a you know uh, a good conversation for the public to listen into on I this afternoon. Right. Yep. Uh, let's talk, first of all, about school safety. Uh, there was a meeting yesterday uh, of the governor's uh, convened group to take a look at school safety and then there was a legislative meeting, uh, Joint Performance Review had a meeting, I believe it was on uh, Tuesday, uh, where they had uh, Dr. Cheryl Mays in to discuss uh, some of the approaches and some of the things around school safety. So let me just ask you, first of all, from the from the governor's perspective, what, what are some of the goals and some of the focus points? And give you an open mic to talk about that for a minute. Well, overall, not to make it uh, as simple as this, but the overall goal is just to be able to better protect our kids and and uh, teachers and staff in our schools here in Arkansas. And uh, but more importantly, I think to a part of that is there's no there's not a one size fits all approach uh, to protecting our students inside the classroom and in the halls of our high schools and and uh, throughout the state because you've got the urban environments you've got the small rural schools so the um school safety commission at this point has really done a phenomenal job about really going into all these different communities talking about the different issues listening to s experts um, checking out the schools themselves to see uh, where there's there are some areas of weakness and where maybe there could be sort of a uh uh, you know, uh, some fixes, not just for the rural schools, but for uh, some of the uh, larger areas of population as well. So I think at this point, it's still sort of the uh, fact gathering, research, finding different ways 
uh, to protect our kids that maybe we haven't thought of or some ways that people have um, overlooked in the past. And then on July 1, they'll have their initial report. Now, that's not the final report, but it is the initial report to the governor um, July 1. And uh, we look forward to seeing that with uh, uh, Dr. May's uh, uh, handoff there. So, And I, I think that is part of the um, temptation that has to be resisted that while we identify their you know, situations going around the world. And, and mm-hmm. Arkansas has been touched by that, you know, right. several years ago uh, with our experience of a school shooting. Um, that the tendency, I think, sometimes is to want to rush into something. Whether it's the right thing or wrong thing to do, people have that desire, that, that initial reaction to want to rush into something and and to develop a slow, steady process as to how we're going to go about that. Because one thing was said in the meeting the other day was uh, it's about – at least one concept it's about resources it's about resource officers in every school building uh which that is that is great idea but the cost that is attached to it uh, in fact that was one thing mentioned in the committee meeting is have you looked at establishing what the cost is going to be to do that and before everybody calls in and lights up the phone (laughs) uh you know my wife is a public school teacher i get it um and and we want nothing but a safe environment for our kids, but we also have to determine, A, what is the cost that goes with it. But an underlying issue, too, is um, just because you put a police officer in every school building, just because we work together with the governor to pass whatever laws you know we decide to pass, uh, at the root of the problem is the culture of the society that seems to be uh, promoting this, if you would, or glamorizing it. Uh, and and that that makes it difficult to have a hundred percent foolproof plan. No, you're absolutely right. I was actually talking about this with uh, uh, someone in the governor's office the other day, just just having a conversation. And I think the um, the the issue that you're seeing not just in Florida and in Texas is that you know now granted these were uh, horrific incidences in both these states, but what you've seen from the legislature and the governors there, sort of this kind of knee-jerk, quick reaction as to how to protect our students. And I think what we're doing here in Arkansas is we're benefiting from being able to really research, uh, have these conversations uh, first and foremost, uh, and figure out how we can go go, go about protecting our students um, in a more substantive, detailed plan. And uh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, when you're talking about resources with a state like Arkansas, you see what Governor Abbott proposed it's in this uh, paper this morning was $100 million. Uh, $100 million in, in, in Texas is much different than $100 million here in the state of Arkansas. So we have to be able to see, okay, what works, what doesn't work. And sometimes there's, there's – uh, we talk about um, – uh, you know, we talk about – uh, you know, the single point of entry is what the governor's um, uh, thrown out there, you know, making it more difficult for someone who does intend to harm students and faculty to enter the building. We talk about sc- school resource officers, but then we've also talked about uh, staff on those campuses, whether it's, uh, you know, an assistant coach uh, or uh, a janitor or someone on staff that can be trained voluntarily uh, to um, – you know, carry there on campus for added protection. And those are ways we can do things that don't cost the state additional expenses, um, just the training of the individual, and then you know you have uh, an additional assistance there on campus if something were to happen, because we saw even in Santa Fe, that uh, Santa Fe High School in Houston, that uh, 
they did have a school resource officer, but they were all the way on the other side of the campus when this took place. So you've got to take those things into account. And I think that's what the school safety commission is doing right now. All right, let's put it on pause for a moment because I think you were walking, as I said, one of the underlying themes that we want to kind of dart in and out of today, if you want to call and give us your opinion about uh, examples of hypocrisy that are existing in the, you know, in the world today, uh, you know, specific to our, to, you know, our regional level in the political world and, you know, events that are going on with the media's reporting. Uh, if you want to call in today, and we'll get to Roman and Garland County here in just a second, but if you want to call in today and uh, talk to JR about issues, uh, you feel free to call in today at 501 501- Eight two three zero nine six five five zero one eight two three zero nick zero nine six five and let's get Garland on line one. Garland, hey Garland, you're on yeah. the radio. Yeah, how you doing, guys? I'm good, uh, Roman. On the heels of what you're just talking about with school safety, I think uh, a great notion to visit, uh, and this falls in line with what comment I would like to make about hypocrisy is that. Here we are in a state where our motto, the state motto being the people rule, you have provisions at the federal level under the federal constitution to have a well-regulated militia, well-regulated meaning trained. And I don't know that it would be wrong for the governor to consider and on the heels of what you called about proper training for proper you know, uh, engagement with scenarios like this, that we have a large cross-section of young uh, uh, military personnel that are healthy, that in some cases have been in the uh, realm of close quarters combat within special ops groups and could very well don uh, sport jackets and proper attire to blend in to the uh, school environment, one resource officer in any campus, as great as those men and women are and a great credit to their craft, you need a few more bodies. And uh, I think you could nip this in the bud along with some signage that I've seen at other schools that state that various personnel on campus are indeed armed. And the psychological deterrent to people that are dearranged uh, would still be uh, something they might consider. And if they don't consider the signage, then obviously you have more than one highly capable and trained uh, personality who understands uh, what gun control really is all about. And we could very quickly see a lot of this go away in America. Um, the problem with hypocrisy at the state level here that we have going on before I, I leave so someone else might want to comment is that it blows my mind that in a state where we ask whether there are elected positions or positions that are appointed that call for a uh, support of the Constitution by oath affirmation, that we repeatedly see a perjury of oath uh, because there are so many statutes that are enabled, enabling legislation like extraterritorial jurisdiction, like annexation, that defy the potentials of the security of the people, uh, meaning that uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction does it not violate the consent clause of the state constitution. People have no way to vote on what's going to affect them. Annexation. No vote repeatedly by uh, 
metro, metropolitan corporations known as cities inflicting their damages and stuff. So I think there's a great hypocrisy that needs to be eliminated by going back through the codifications and any and all matters that violate constitutional ethic should be removed. And just because you have a, a city uh, that thinks that they can flex their muscle, there are rights. There are things that we are supposed to be standing for that identify us as America in the, in the context of uh, republic governance. Roman, you bring up some good points. I'll tell you what I'm going to ask. we got to go to a break, but what I want to ask you to do is, if I mess up and hang up on you because I don't sit this chair very often, you call back yeah, give, You call back and give Russ your phone number so we're not giving it out over the air. You call back and give Russ your number, and, and we'll do some follow-up discussions off air. How about that? Does that sound good? Whatever you want to do is fine by me. Throw it open to the public. You guys will comment. I'm, I'm good with whatever way it goes. All right, very good, good Roman. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. Hey, Daryl and uh, North Little Rock, hang on. we got to go to a break here in just a second. We'll pick you up right after the break, okay? Again, you're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. Kim Hammerstate, representative hosting for Dave, who's gone to his granddaughter's graduation. You want to call in and talk on these topics, 501-823-0965. Hey, good afternoon. Kim Hammer standing in for Dave Ellswick on the Dave Ellswick Show. He is, as I mentioned before, off enjoying uh, his granddaughter's graduation. So kudos to Dave to taking time off to go be with his family for the graduation. If you want to call in today, we got J.R. Davis with the governor's office in. We've been talking about uh, school safety. Uh, the task force met yesterday, or the commission that the governor called in uh, to examine it met yesterday. Joint performance review on the legislative branch had a meeting on it Wednesday, and that is the subject for the moment. But the underlying conversation throughout the afternoon is going to be, what do you see as your examples of hypocrisy that exist, for example, uh, Roseanne apologized for what she said. Shouldn't have said it, by the way. Shouldn't have said right. it. Uh, I'm not excusing that. Uh, if you thought it, that was one of those things you shouldn't have said. She did. Uh, ABC canceled her show. Understand that Fox picked it up, which if that's true, that's great. Um, but then you got ABC who says that that doesn't align with uh, their moral values or with their standards, which seems kind of hypocritical considering all the other shows that they allow and all the other subject matters that they allow. Uh, seems to me like a blatant example of hypocrisy. So I'm curious what you see as some things in society and how you can direct it to the political world. Uh, whatever area you see that you think that hypocrisy is running amok in the uh, in the area or in the nation, you can call into five zero one eight two three zero nine six five. Right now, we're going to go to Daryl. Uh, I think he has a thought or a topic on the uh, school safety issue. Daryl from uh, North Little Rock, glad to have you on the on the uh, radio this afternoon. Go ahead with your thoughts. Uh, I just got a quick question for you. Probably two. One on. Uh like all this gun shooting stuff and all the stuff y'all doing and trying to do and all that, which is fantastic. But does anybody ever know, you know, nobody knows what goes through a psycho's mind. You can't protect that. There's no way. Yep. You know, he might, he might wake up one morning, oh, oh I'm going to go shoot a bunch of people up. Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you defend that? All right, Darrell, hang on a second, JR. We're down, uh, Russ, tell me, we're down to one minute before we get to a hard break. So uh, what's, your, what's your second question, Darrell? The and, second question is Roseanne Dale. Yeah. Man, it's a, it's a TV show, for God's sake. It's a TV show. <laughs> you know? So, 
Hell, she apologized. I, I don't know. I don't want to see what the big deal is. I mean, she screwed up. She apologized. It's just a TV show. I don't understand what's wrong with the world today. All right, Daryl, we're going down to a hard break. We'll talk about that when we come back. You feel free to call back in. Anybody else wants to call in, you can come back to 501-823-0965. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show with Kim Hammer, State Rep, filling in for Dave and J.R. Davis in the uh, studio this afternoon. Y'all come back. Hey, good afternoon. You're on the Dave Ellswick Show with Kim Hammer, State Representative, hosting for Dave this afternoon, who's uh, out enjoying his granddaughter's graduation this weekend. So uh, just safe travels to Dave. And then uh, we have in the studio today J.R. Davis with the governor's office, and we are talking about various topics. I want to remind you that this coming Saturday is the car show in Conway at the Conway Expo. Uh, take Highway 64 off the interstate, uh, head back toward Valonia, and you'll come up on it about a mile or so down there on the right. All the proceeds go to support the Ronald McDonald House, which J.R. is a great place in a time when you don't really want to be there but you need a you need a place like the ronald mcdonald house can't say enough good things about the ronald mcdonald house that's right so uh let's let's come out and support that on saturday the show actually goes from 10 to 2 o'clock if you have a car that you want to check in you haven't got it pre-registered yet uh you can show up saturday morning at seven o'clock they'll take i think the pre-registered ones first so you might want to get there early uh otherwise your car might be outside uh, so encourage you to get there early. It'll be a great family day for everybody to get out. You want to call in this afternoon, you can call in to 501-823-0965. One of the underlying themes is if you identify an area that you see uh, in society, the political world, uh, television, on the media outlets uh, that you think is a real standout example of the hypocrisy that's going on, uh, then want to call in and just uh, give us your thoughts. Appreciate Roman and Daryl calling in with their thoughts. And, uh, J.R., let's go back to where Daryl, uh, had, we had to cut him off for the hard break. He brought up two questions. One about, uh, you know, how do you, how do you identify a psycho that's going to come in and shoot up a school? Um, we were in the Joint Performance Review Committee the other day because they were discussing this topic as mm-hmm. well, and Dr. Cheryl Mays uh, was bringing out uh, some thoughts about uh, the resources for the mental health um, support in the school systems. And I used to be a case manager for a mental health firm and worked as a regional director for a while with one. And, and yes, there are kids that are in our schools that need the resources that mental health services can provide. Um, but in reality, if somebody has it in their mind that they want to come in and do what uh, some of these, uh, and I'm going to call them barbarians, uh, you know, what they have done to some of our schools, all the resources we put and everything uh, may not necessarily stop it from happening. Right. So when it doesn't, when we can't stop it from happening, then what should be, or as we try to make an attempt to stop it from happening, what should, what do you think should be some of the underlying objectives that at least we want to get achieved yeah well first of all it's a very difficult um uh question to answer because uh, you know we talked about this during the break Uh, people are going to do what they want to do and if it's to harm others they're going to do everything they can to do that but you know and look first and foremost i mean being a teacher uh in 2018 and, and being in the administration of a school it's very difficult work you have to worry about a thousand more things than just teaching your students. But I think it's important to remember, too, that almost, you know, the day following every mass shooting at a school, there's always some story or 
uh, evidence that this individual was having problems before or showed signs or reached out. And I think it's really important for our schools, it's sort of that see something, say something, and don't be afraid to report something that you see from an individual. Um, and I think that that's, that's really sort of the first line of defense, if you will, just being vigilant in that approach uh, to, to um, you know, staying alert to students and, and strange behavior and that sort of thing. Um, we saw a case in Bologna recently uh, with a student, and, and that's, you know, a, a, a continuing on, but, but it's just important for, for individuals to speak up when they see something. Now, when it comes to the actual uh, school safety aspect of it, yes, you can't prevent bad things from happening, but you can certainly deter uh, as much as possible bad things from happening. You know, Clarksville School District's a great example. They do have armed personnel uh, in their schools that are staff. Uh, that, are, that have volunteered to be trained, uh, and the students don't know which uh, uh, which staff member uh, is carrying or is trained. They have signs on the windows there that uh, that say that um, you know that there are uh, uh, trained staff on campus, and I think that's a deterrent. Uh, I think that goes into every, uh, an individual's decision to carry out a plan like that. Um, if, if there are those deterrents in place. And then, of course, once it does happen, it's the plan of reaction. It's, it's how do you mitigate, mitigate that tragedy? How do you protect your students uh, in a lockdown situation, uh, keeping the, the, uh, the classrooms locked and shut and, and clearing the hallways and, and responding as quickly as possible? And if it is a school resource officer in one part of the school or if you do have a, a volunteer uh, trained staff that can respond accordingly as well. So there are certainly things you can do, um, but it's it's a holistic approach. You know, you've got to be able to uh, identify those issues before they become uh, tragedies. Uh, you've got to be able to deter them where you can, and then you've got to react when it happens. And I think those are all the things that uh, the School Safety Commission is taking into consideration before they file their first report. Um, and, and obviously, I said this before, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to this, but there are certain things that we can do uh, to better protect our schools and our staff so our kids can learn and our teachers can teach. And as I mentioned a while ago, my wife is a public school educator of 34-plus uh, years, and she's taught in various levels her first year, which last Saturday uh, we went back to Augusta. That's She taught six years at Augusta. That was her first you know school hmm. uh, to teach in. And uh, she had a great experience. We had a great time Saturday reconnecting with, you know, with the folks that she had taught. And when you look at the diversity of the way in which schools are laid out, you know, you've to to say we're going to do it like this and expect it to adapt to all the schools is not really a very realistic expectation uh, because I graduated Southside B Branch, you know, and it's a campus that's kind of spread out on top of a hill. And long before a resource officer could get to one area, the you know the damage is already done. Just sharing personal thoughts, I think if we can put the resources in place so that if somebody thinks about doing that, that they are going to recognize that they are going to be met with force mm-hmm. of some level. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things I heard, you know, uh, being reported on TV last night, they were showing a segment is, uh, you know, about as a teacher, don't make me be trained you know to carry a weapon i don't think any teacher ought to be made to do anything because they're not going to respond absolutely in an environment like that uh to the level that you want them to be able to do however kind of like what roman called in a while ago 
uh, what if you do have individuals that have that degree of training absolutely you know teachers that maybe have been in an environment i think that we need to work together as a legislative branch with the administrative branch and and help secure those resources in the schools uh to the degree that people feel like they could be comfortable and go out and get that training thoughts on that well absolutely well let's go back to your uh, the original uh kind of subject for conversation today and that's hypocrisy and what you saw after uh, the Florida school shooting was this immediate reaction to states uh, and including here in Arkansas uh, and the governor went on face the nation and talked about this very issue was uh, we are we are not forcing teachers to be trained uh, to handle an a, a firearm it is about volunteering uh, or having the background and volunteering to do something like this. So it is, it's something where there are people with backgrounds, whether they're, they've been uh, in the military or they have some sort of maybe private security background or whatever it might be, whether it's an assistant coach or a teacher or what have you, they feel very comfortable in an environment like that. And so they are now a resource to that school, to the staff and to the students that they can be properly trained uh, to assist uh, uh, the school resource officer there um, or engage the individual who uh, who tries to uh, you know shoot up uh, a school, and I, and I think that's really important. You I mean you hear these stories constantly about a teacher throwing themselves in front of their kids to protect their lives and that sort of thing. I, I have a feeling that if given the opportunity to have some sort of resource to fight back versus just sort of sacrificing yourself for your students, I think that's something that most uh, educators. Uh, would appreciate having access to and if they choose not to absolutely 100 percent. we want our teachers to be comfortable in their classroom we want them to be able to teach however this is it's 2018 it's a very different world um, and we've got to be able to put those people in place that can protect our students in a situation like that or respond accordingly and and i think part of the challenge too is that we sit here you know in the capitol and you got a hundred representatives you got 35 senators you've got uh, you got the administrative branch and everything, and what we've got to be sensitive to is what we sit here in Little Rock and discuss and decide. I still think that there needs to be some ability to yield to that local school district because Absolutely. that local school district is going to know their people and know their scenario, and they're going to know their kids better than anybody else. Right. Um, so if we can, you know, work together to help secure that i think we're we're going a long way toward the you know toward the first step because right. unless we're going to put a police officer in every classroom which is not practical um you know idealistically yeah that'd be nice but not practical then we have to drop back and and see what the mm-hmm. multiple levers are I'm getting told we've got to go to a break you're listening to dave ellswick show kim hammer state rep hosting for dave today i uh, got jr davis governor's office in 501-823-0965 if you want to call in Hey, good afternoon. You're on the Dave Ellswick Show. Call in number 501-823-0965, uh, 501-823-0965. You want to chime in? We've been talking about school safety, but we're going we're gonna to move away from that and uh, talk about another topic before we have to let JR go. Uh, but I want to give a final word on the, on the school safety uh, issue. Let nobody misunderstand anything. Our utmost concern is for the welfare of the kids Absolutely. and the teachers Absolutely. and the staff and the parents that are in line picking up their kids. Uh, what we are going to work together on is to make sure that our schools are as safe, realizing realistically if somebody is of that evil, demonic nature that they go in and choose to do something, they're going to have the advantage of planning for it for a long time. 
and they're going to go in with a strategic advantage. So the goal would be to, A, prevent it, but B, mm-hmm. minimize it once it starts. Absolutely. And then, in my opinion, the third thing is eliminate the risk, even at the point of taking life, because they've made themselves vulnerable by their own choice. Yep. And it would be it would be good if that could if they could be terminated at that point and so that that is one thing i think the public needs to know that the administrative branch and legislative branch are working together for the best interest of of the school system absolutely and you made a point earlier and i think it's important for the folks out there listening to know that this is the goal of this is not to you know have an unfunded mandate to these local school districts absolutely not what we want to do is to be able to be a resource to them and and point out things that they can do better um and some things may not even cost you know money it's just doing things differently uh and and that's what this whole entire uh, safety commission is about just to look at everything talk to the experts what can we do um, that you know, it's good stewards of our resources and our money to make sure that these uh, school districts are protected, these schools are protected. But at the end of the day, uh, Representative Hammer, you, you nailed it on the head. This is we want that local control to be with the school districts. We just want to be a resource to them so uh, we can all work together to better protect our schools and everyone in them. All right, moving on to uh, needs of people. There was a ruling came out that's in the paper today about a judge. Uh, that has basically uh, put a halt on some individuals being able to re- receive resources that are on the waiting list. Uh, one thing I'd like to preface and you know give you an opportunity to respond to is uh, that with regards to when matters happen where there is a need for a rule to be implemented uh, based on determination that it is an emergency situation, that's why they call it the emergency rule, right. uh, that the legislature has a group that it's the ALC Executive Committee. They're made up of representatives and senators. And if a uh, agency, in this case DHS, presents to the ALC Executive Committee that there is a need that has arisen that has been defined as an emergency status, um, that that ALC can issue an emergency ruling, and that comes before ALC and is approved that same week, and it allows the process to continue while they, within 120 days, formulate the rest of the rule and get it worked out, including public comment. Uh, so what we have is a judge that has issued a ruling that said it didn't rise to the level of emergency status to do that. Tell me uh, the governor's response as far as how this ruling might be detrimental uh, to, you know, to some of the population of the state of Arkansas. Well, I think that's that's the, the disagreement, you know, respectfully, is that, you know, that this is an emergency and there are lives in peril. And, you know, just uh, so folks know, as of May 14th, after this uh, ruling from uh, uh, Pulaski County Circuit Court judge, uh, DHS cannot accept or assess any new R choices beneficiaries, so they can't assess new beneficiaries. They can't reassess current beneficiaries, uh, even if their conditions worsen. Um, and then they can't use the uh, rug methodology or allocate attendant care hours using that methodology, which is which is the new methodology with uh, uh, with R choices. And so, um, you know, we see this as, as certainly an emergency, um, but you know, we we want to do everything we can to protect. Um, those folks that are in the program uh, currently, uh, DHS uh, sent out a uh, email, a memo, if you will, to the providers, and, and you know, asking uh, them to continue to provide current beneficiaries with services at current levels for a short time. 
Um, and uh, in the meantime, DHS has written a letter to the federal centers for uh, federal centers for Medicare and Medicaid services, uh, seeking emergency approval to continue to provide existing beneficiaries their current level of services until we have a long-term solution to this situation. And it's important to note that the state, not the providers, will assume any financial risk uh, if CMS does not approve our request um, for this. But but that just shows the 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 focus of DHS is to make sure that those folks in our choices are getting the services that they need uh, to to live their lives uh, and and uh, to live. Period. Uh, so it's very very important. It's very critical. Um, and and so DHS, while this uh, situation in the Pulaski County Court uh, is being worked out, their focus is on um, the Arkansans that need these services to make sure they still get them. And that's important. Yeah, and that's uh, I think that's one thing that's important to distinguish is that there are individuals who need those services that by this ruling right. until this is resolved exactly is are are going to be disadvantaged because they're not going to be able to get access to those services, which supports the reason why it rose to the level of an emergency status in the first place. Very clear. Yep, absolutely, and so that's why. Uh, that's why DHS, you know, and right now the, the, their hands are tied to a point because of this decision. And until it is resolved, you're right, um, their hands continue to be tied, but they're acting with the limited resources they have to ensure for the time being that these folks are at least staying where they're at. Uh, because, as I mentioned earlier, they can't do any new assessments uh, right now and they can't reassess folks that are on the program. Uh, and so it really puts uh, our choices and, and the state in a bind until uh, uh, this is worked out in um, the judge's court. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But but I commend uh, DHS for, for looking at all their options and doing whatever they can to make sure folks are at least staying at the same level of care uh, while this is going on and, uh, and getting some of those services. All right, uh, shifting gears, we got about five minutes left. You want to call in and ask JR a question, uh, 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. This is the Dave Ellswick Show being hosted today by Kim Hammer, state representative. Glad you're listening. Uh, another topic is uh, been sitting in on some of the tax force meetings, uh, which met um, last week before the break. Uh, any updates you want to give us from the governor's perspective about about that? Sure, I, and this is—I know people have heard me say this before, um, but it's—you know—it's the truth. We're we're still in the uh, uh, collection stage of information and, and looking at all the ins and outs. At first, it was the, the the sales tax exemptions, and and now we're looking at the tax code as a whole. Um, I think this is this should uh, uh, make a lot of Arkansans happy in that the legislature is actually looking at all of this and seeing what we can do because. It takes research if you truly want to reform the tax code here in Arkansas uh, and and have true, meaningful reform in the 2019 legislative session. Uh, this is what has to happen first. So uh, I think through the last, um, uh, you know, last few months, uh, there's been a lot of misrepresentation out there about what the task force was doing uh, and, and, you know, making things uh, seem concrete, which they were not, uh, and and now we look back and realize that was the truth, and and there wasn't it wasn't anything concrete yet. Um, this is just simply putting everything on the table and seeing what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. Are there uh, you know are there exceptions to fairness? Are there things that are 
um, antiquated that you know were put into effect years ago that no longer make sense in today's economy. All these things are important. Um, and in addition to that, of course, the governor's made it clear about what he'd like to see in the 2019 session, and that's uh, bringing the top marginal income tax rate from 6.9% to 6%, which is about a $180 million cut. Uh, and again, that's misrepresented, too, that people say we're just having this massive tax cut for um, the state's top earners. And I would remind folks that this is actually the third tier of those tax cuts. We did a $100 million tax cut, the largest in Arkansas's history, in 2015, that was geared uh, towards middle-class Arkansans. You know, the governor calls that the sweet part of our economy, uh, the sweet spot. And then in 2017, we came back and, and gave a tax cut to those making below 21000 And so this is just the next step um, in in cutting the income tax rate to make us more competitive with our surrounding states, which is necessary. You know, and we got a few minutes, so just as a legislator, got one minute. As a legislator, the one thing I want to make sure to drive across is that uh, I don't want us to play a shell game. And I don't really think the right. governor wants to play a shell no, game either. But for not. the record, um, if we're going to cut taxes, we need to cut taxes and not just do a do a shift to another area. Um, and I, I do think the committee is looking at the low-lying fruit that are out there, a mm-hmm. lot of things that are on the books that there's a lot of dollars attached to as far as the appropriation or having to cover it. And, and that's a good first step, along with improving the efficiency. Got about 30 seconds. So the spread was 70-30 as far as the governor winning. Any final thoughts on the way out? You know, I think uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it felt good that the people of Arkansas saw through the clutter, looked at facts, uh, and saw that the governor has done everything he said he would do. And he was the only candidate in that race uh, that had a plan for the future. So I think it was an impressive night all the way around, and we appreciate their votes. All right, Dave Ellswick, 823-0965. Misha Martin, DH- DCFS, coming on next. Hey, good afternoon. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, state representative, filling in for Dave this afternoon, who's on the road uh, to his granddaughter's graduation. So we want to say congratulations to her and to Dave. Hope you have a good time off. Come back with your batteries recharged for Monday. If you want to call in during this segment, the phone number is 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. Before we get started with Misha Markin, Director of DCFS, who's in the studio with us this afternoon, I want to remind you that this coming Saturday at the Conway Expo Center in Conway, which is on Highway 64 East going out toward Valonia, is the uh, car show that's being hosted uh, to support the Ronald McDonald House. You may have heard it spoken about on uh, Dave's program the other day with Joe from Joe's Garage and uh, Duck from Duck's Garage down in Benton, uh, that they are helping coordinate that. If you have a car that you'd like to get in, uh, get in at 7 o'clock. Uh, those that are pre-registered get first place because they did their job and got registered on time. Uh, but they will take cars all the way up till I think, about 10 o'clock, and you can have your car entered. There are some prizes, some awards that go along uh, for the various uh, cars that are entered and the judging that will go on with them. And then it will be open to the public from 10 to 2 o'clock, and that's at the Conway Expo Center this Saturday. So it'll be a great time to come out, support a good cause, and see some really good classic automobiles. Um, my wife has a 1975 AMC Gremlin that uh, she was given by her parents. Be nice, Russ. Uh, I am given- being nice, dude. This, that was the first car I ever owned. Was it really? Yeah, well- it was bronze. Bronze, hers was baby blue with the speed stripe down the side, which I don't know why they had a speed stripe on that thing, but they had the, got the white stripe going down it. Well, I got mine and the movie came out, and I kept thinking all I wanted to do was put a big old piece of uh, shag carpet down the middle of it 
so I could uh, call it that uh, spike. Okay. <laughs> You're going back a few years. but Well, we're going to get that thing restored, actually. And uh, when as soon as we get it restored, we're going to take it up there to the car show, hopefully next year or the year after, and enter it and show people what a real classic car is like. Because until it's you see an AMC Grim. Because a buddy of mine who I knew when I was in high school, uh, Brett Hunter, Brett Hunter, lives down in Hot Springs, and he posted on my Facebook page of the the commercial about the Gremlin. Did you see that yesterday? Somebody somebody shared that with my wife yesterday. It shows them swapping in and out of the car yes. at the stop. It's kind of like yeah, the, yeah. He, he posted it on my Facebook page last week. Classic commercial, and we've got we've even got uh, we actually bought two of the gas caps because they got the little Gremlin on them. And people used to steal the gas caps off the Gremlin because of that little Gremlin on there. So we've got two. We've got an original and a replacement, and uh, hopefully we'll get that car in there. All right, let's get on to uh, something a little bit more serious in nature. We have Misha Martin, director of DCFS for the state of Arkansas. And uh, this is her first time in the studio, first time on the that's radio. Correct. So that's this is correct. her debut, so that's great. Uh, let's start off just so people have a little personal background. Tell us who Misha Martin is and how you rose to the ranks becoming director. Well, yeah, it's quite a story, but um, again, I'm Misha Martin. I'm the director of uh, Division of Children and Family Services. I've been at the Department of Human Services for now 10 years, and uh, I went to law school and didn't really want to be a lawyer and thought when I got out, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to help kids. And so that's how I ended up at DHS representing Children and Family Services and Dependency Neglect Hearings. And um, not really sure how I rose to be the director of DCFS, but I'm very passionate about helping children, children and families in Arkansas. And so it seems to be a fit for me right now. So how long have you been the director? Two years. A little two. over two years. Okay. Um, so tell us, when you, when you came in, um, and, and anybody that's been listening to Dave Ellswick's show or keeping up with the news uh, knows that DCFS is a very uh, can be a very controversial agency uh, because it's dealing with young children, dealing with families, dealing with what all, what all areas exactly do you deal with? Tell the public. Well, I say the easy way to define what we do is we pretty much handle any anything that comes into the child abuse hotline. So. Um, now, we do partner with the Crimes Against Children Division, who handles some Priority One investigations. But about every year, we have about 30,000 um, accepted calls to the hotline that DCFS is responsible for investigating, providing in-home services, as well as um, providing care for those children who are placed in foster care and ensuring that those children um, get to permanency. All right. So when you came in, what did you inherit? I mean, I was there. I know what it is, but just so everybody knows, what did you inherit when you came in as director? Which you you you've been with the agency how long as an employee? Ten years, but I was not working for the di- I was not working for the division. I was representing the division, so I was really an outsider to the division. So when I came in two years ago, um, that the division was really in crisis. Um, we had experienced almost a thirty percent increase in the number of children in foster care. We were over budget. We um, Our caseloads were almost double the national standard. We had several counties that had experienced great and high turnover among caseworkers. So we were really in a place that we had to really take a close look at the system and make sure that we were doing the best for children and families. Okay. And so just for give us a snapshot from your perspective as the director 
where we are right now because DCFS has issues that rise up periodically. It you know kind of quiets down and then it rises up. So as far as as far as the director, what do you see right now, or what are some issues that you see right now that that you know are getting a lot of your attention that you're having to devote a lot of your time to? Well, we're still really working on strengthening our workforce. I have some great staff, but we've also been working really hard to improve our culture, improve our customer service to our clients and our staff. It's really important that we looked at the number of children that were in foster care and figured out were those the right children in foster care, meaning were we getting children to permanency timely? Were we getting them with their family? Were we getting them with their relatives? Were we getting them to adoption? We hit a all-time peak um, just a few months after I became director at over 5,200 children. Today, we're at 4,609 children. So we've seen a 500 child reduction while we've continued to keep children safe. And that, that's, been a, that's been a combined effort of not only closely looking at who's coming into foster care and making sure that the children who absolutely have to be in foster care are the ones that are placed in foster care when they're in immediate danger, and then also looking at our discharges and making sure that we're getting kids with families, with their bio families, with their relatives, and we're, we're getting adoptions finalized t- timely. The last two years, uh, we've broke records in Arkansas uh, of the number of adoptions finalized. And so uh, we're, we're doing a, a multiple focus of making sure that we're consistent and using best practice across the board. When it comes to the reduction of 500 um do you remember what it was when you came in as director? Um, it was about forty nine or five thousand. I think about five thousand is what we were right when I became director. And 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 so we're down we're down at forty six oh nine. So what what are the key contributing factors that have reduced it by five hundred? Do you have more foster parents? Um, do you have more adoptions going on? Are we are we seeing? I don't think we are, but give it the benefit of the doubt. Are we seeing an improvement in society as far as people raising their kids and doing right by being good parents? What What is it that's contributing to the reduction? Right. Well, I definitely say it's not uh, improvements in society. It's about us making good judgment about who comes into foster care, meaning only children who are in immediate danger, making sure that we're not making decisions out of fear. So we have seen a slight reduction in the number of entries into foster care. But the bulk of the number of redu- the number is reduced because of how we're discharging kids, and that's just not one thing. Some kids need to get back with their families. Some ne- kids need to go with their relatives, and some kids um, need to ha- to be in adoptive families. And we focused on all three and making sure that permanency is a um, is a value that this foster care really is a short term intervention and not a long term solution. So over the at least the last three months. We've had more discharges from foster care than we've had injuries. All right. And do you anticipate the trend continuing to go down? I know this is a, I mean, this is a dangerous thing for us to even talk about. Obviously, the goal would be zero, but realistically, you know, I don't want to be a pessimist, but realistically, that's, that's not going to happen until we get the issues addressed that are, you know, occurring in society. So is there a number that you think that we respectfully, you as representing the administrative branch and us representing the legislative branch, is there a number that's on the board? Not that we would want to say, well, we reached 3,000. You know, it's kind of like a church. Well, we want to reach 200 and quit. No, you're never happy. You always want to go one more. But in your case, we want to go down. 
not up in numbers. So so what's the next magic number we're looking for? Right. So we have set goals for ourselves and numbers, but we have not actually set a number that we're trying to strive to on the number of children in foster care because our priority is, one, to keep children safe, and two, to ensure that children who don't need to be in foster care, their their time for permanency, we get them there. So we're focusing more on goals related to adoption and, and timely adoption. And we have goals um, related to our relatives' placements, trying to get to the national standard of 29% of our kids are placed with relatives. And we'd love to, to actually blow that out of the water because as an organization and, and the organization I inherited – was did not have a culture of valuing relatives. And so that work had begun before me and has continued um, during my tenure of really looking and valuing relatives. And we still have a lot of work to do in that area. So tell me about the outside. You know, you, most, most of when you have to get involved in a child's life or a family's life, is it originating from one of the 30,000 calls you referenced a while ago? How much of it is also directed by judges ordering things that you as an agency have to, you know, accept or or speak to that for a second? Right. So most of our, I mean, a significant majority of our cases do start, do start with a um, hotline call. Um, now, judges do get us involved in what's called family in need of services cases, and those are when families or schools go to the courts and ask for assistance or oversight over a family. And so sometimes in those cases, a judge can get us involved without us having a hotline call. But that would be a small percentage of the cases that that we handle and work with families on. All right. We've got to take a break, according to Russ. So we're going to go to a break. You want to call in? Misha is very receptive to calls coming in. So if you want to call in, call in to 501-823-823. 0965. Again, we have Misha Martin, who's the director of DCFS, on the show today in the studios. And you can call in and ask questions or uh, contribute to the conversation. Hey, welcome. Oh, welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, state representative, hosting for Dave Day, who's out with his granddaughter on uh, graduation this weekend. You want to call in and talk to Misha Martin, the director of DCFS, who's in the studio today. Uh, she is up for any question. She's come uh, ready to answer any question or take any comments you want to have. You can call in to 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. Appreciate, uh, Misha, you being in the studio today. Tell me, and let's talk about when a child gets taken into foster care, who are all the principal parties that are involved in that child's case? Right, so when a child comes into foster care, we're required to file a petition with the court. And once the court signs an emergency order that, that child is in foster care, at that point you have a judge involved. Um, you have an attorney ad litem who is assigned to represent the best interest of the child. Um, you could possibly have parent counsel. Um, the law allows that parents from whom custody was removed are assigned to parent counsel if they're indigent. Um, you can have CASA, the court-appointed special advocates, can be assigned to the case, and they um, are seen as the eyes and ears of the court and go out and investigate, as well as the Division of Children and Family Services, who's represented by an attorney at DHS, often referred to as the OCC attorney. So as far as who's advocating for the child, um, is CASA the primary party involved that is advocating for the child themselves. 
Well, I'd like to say that at the Department of Human Services, we are doing what's right for children. And us as the principal uh, plaintiff in the case, we have a responsibility to give the court the information about the child, the family, and make recommendations that are good for both the child and the family. And then I would say next is the attorney ad litem who has to represent their best interests and advocate for that. And then, of course, CASA um, does also provide reports to the court and testify about their recommendations on what is good for the child or the family. All right. One of the hot topics, too, that has come up, you know, in the past is this matter of true finding. Uh, First of all, let's define true finding and what that means when we use that terminology. Okay, so, you know, true findings are actually outside of the foster care system. So I'm going to back up a little bit. When we get a call to the hotline and the, the call is accepted, at that point, um, either Division of Children and Family Service or Crimes Against Children Division is responsible for investigating that allegation. If at any point during that investigation, we believe that that child is in immediate danger, DCFS can place into foster care. But beside the assessment of safety, we have 45 days to investigate that maltreatment or abuse or neglect. And at the conclusion of that 45 days, if we find that there's enough evidence of that abuse or neglect, we make a true finding. And that is a true finding against the alleged offender. And um, they have the opportunity at that point to appeal to Office of Appeals and Hearing. If they appeal, uh, they have a right to have a hearing before an admin judge. If our finding is upheld, they go on what is called the central registry. Now, that is very different than the sex offender registry. The the central registry was um, created to ensure that people working with vulnerable populations do not have a true finding so that they're safe and appropriate. So that's daycare, schools, um, maybe nursing homes. Um, and so that's what the central registry is. Okay. And when when you talk about foster parents and and primarily when it comes to dcfs you're dealing with foster parents and and what else well i mean we well we have about over 1700 foster parent which is is a significant increase and i'll tell you that's really in credit to the to the governor and his focus on um helping us recruit foster parents through his restore hope summit back actually before me, the year before me, that's really where the increase in foster parents came and and our partnership with the call Children of Arkansas Love for a Lifetime who've been recruiting foster parents. But um, And I should have involved foster parents when, when you asked me about who's involved in the team because we if our children can't be with relatives, we want them to be in a family setting and we want them to be with foster parents. So I should have included them in, on that initial list of, of stakeholders and parties who are um, – involved in our foster care cases the number of foster parents are are we are we you you implied that we're gaining ground but are we um are we losing them out the back doors as quick as we're getting in the front door what's what's the turnover rate on foster parents i don't have that specific turnover rate in my um with me today but i can tell you that 38 percent of our we lost 38 percent of our families um because they were relatives who adopted so some of our increase in foster families has be, has been because relatives have become foster pa- families, which is a good thing. And we do lose foster parents. We've been working really hard over the last two years to improve our relationship with foster parents. We recognize that we still have a lot of work to do, working with our local staff to really see them as a team. Um, but this work is hard. So even if we at DCFS are doing everything that we can do to support our foster families, which we still have a lot of work to do, 
it's it's a hard it's hard to be a foster parent and it takes a lot of community support well and you found out when you came in today uh russ uh who's steering the ship today uh is actually a foster parent or has foster parent experience and everything and it and it really kind of amazes me you run into people just on the street you get to talking or maybe come visit your church or they come to work with you whatever you know the number of people that have some foster parent experience now you mentioned the call and i'm familiar with the call because we've got a real strong presence down in Saline county and so real quick just hit on who the call is again and then we got to go to a break yeah so the call partners with us to recruit foster families within the faith-based organizations they do not take any funds from the state they recruit they train they support and almost 40 percent of our families were recruited and trained by the call all right very good you want to call in 501-823-0965 going to a break dave ellswick show kim hammer hosting hey good afternoon kim hammer state representative hosting for dave this afternoon who's off with his uh, granddaughter's graduation you want to call in we're going to have Misha Martin, who's with us in the studio today for about another 10, 11 minutes. She's got to get back for a meeting. She is the director of DCFS, so if you uh, have questions, concerns, issues that you want to ask her about or bring to her attention or just uh, uh, just air out about something, you feel free to call in at 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. Let's pick up where we left off, Misha, and that was on the uh, foster parenting. You were talking about the call a uh, faith-based organization that receives no funding from the state is that what you said that's correct that's correct so how do they get um how does a faith-based organization that's providing you foster parents uh with no funding from the state which is great uh, how do how do they get to where dcfs can accept them so that you could start giving them foster children as placement in their home what's the process Right. So the call um, will host informational meetings that people can go to, and then they really walk the families through getting open. So that means training. That means walking alongside them as they're completing the other requirements, getting a home study. But once they are open foster homes, which means they're ready for placement, they then become the responsibilities of the state to monitor and place children in those homes. You know, we've really partnered with the call over the over the last year to change our message about w- what it is that we need for for our foster families because in looking at the data and looking at our children, we realize that we really need families that are willing to take children 6 and up and sibling groups. So, those are the kids that are in care. We've had some slow growth in foster families because I think it you know, it's a, it's harder for families to step up and take those 6 and up in in sibling groups. We also know those families are out there. So, if you're interested in being a foster parent, I just want to go ahead and put the plug out there. You can either reach out to the call or you can go to fosterarkansas.org and fill out an inquiry form, and we will help um, get you going through the process or answer any questions that you have about being foster parents. Because one of our biggest values is that we want our kids with families, and we want them with relatives first, but if that's not appropriate, then we want them in family, in good, safe family settings. And, and when you don't have a foster family that fits the needs of the child, that then then they're looking at placement 
in uh, facilities like Second Chance Ranch or some of the other ones around the state. Is that right or connect the dots on that? Well, yeah, but you know, I don't, you know, I don't like to call Second Chance Ranch a facility because we have some That's great true. providers out there that have family-like settings that do a great job of providing um, families and homes for our kids. But yes, if there's not a family available, then we do look at placing kids in emergency shelters or other residential treatment programs. Um, but we always want to look at the kid, their behaviors, what What's best for them and try and get them in a family in their community so they can um, keep their connections and remain in their schools because we know that putting kids in foster care causes trauma and we want to minimize that trauma as much as possible and and yeah i'll stand corrected as far as referring to say chance ranch as a facility they're not they're actually home and and they may be on here after a little bit we're trying to reach out to them but it's a it is they like several others and and i think they're really kind of setting the mold for the expectation of the environment that we want foster children to be able to experience as far as being in that home environment with home parents house parents um you know and the setting that they have so but the ideal choice is is if you had enough foster parents to go around for all the kids that are in foster care that would that be a fair statement that'd be ideal yeah, and the key is in their community. So um, we're really looking and trying to figure out where we need to do some targeted recruitment because we don't want, if a kid comes into care, say in Arkansas County, to have to be placed all the way in Pulaski County. We really want to try and find the right number of homes that are safe and appropriate within the communities where, where the children have to come into foster care. All right, a couple topics, and um, just so the audience knows, I'm not – trying to pitch you softball so you don't know what i'm about to talk about next on the next two but uh talk about the culture of dcfs because um you know to be a dcfs worker you got to be a special person to be a worker at all especially if you're working outside the administration level and you're working out in the actual direct contact care uh not only with the public the parents and the kids what are you doing to change the culture of the image of dcfs so that people have a higher trust level given what you actually inherited. Right. So first let me say that, you know, the majority of staff that work at DCFS are amazing individuals. They come to work every day because they're passionate about serving children and families. They're in the trenches doing hard work. Many of them um, sacrifice their own families for um, putting their work and passion for the for the job at first. And it's more than just a job. Like me, it's really a calling. But to change the culture, we knew that we had to improve um, customer service. Uh, we have to improve. I think part of the reason that um, we've had some issues in the past is because we've had um, lack of experience. So we took kind of a different approach than DCFS has taken in the past, and we went out to our supervisors and said that you know you guys are the cornerstone of this division Uh, you have more tenure here than those frontline workers and we expect that you're coaching mentoring and setting an example of customer service we're doing that from a central office perspective and we've been holding supervisors more accountable and so there's been some some changes um, among our supervisors across the state who were with us long time but um, that that's really our expectation we are messaging and working with supervisors but ultimately uh, we have high expectations for our supervisors to to really work with staff and help us create a culture that is mission driven and that is client focused and so what if what if somebody wanted to become a dcfs worker what's your what's your current turnover rate i know we've been monitoring this but the current turnover rate 
and the opportunities that are available in the DCFS field, what are they? So the, uh, the bulk of our opportunities are among our family service workers. Um, we do have a, about a 30% turnover rate, though it's dropped a few percentage points here and there. Um, it's, it's hard work, but it's rewarding work. It requires a bachelor's. You can go on the Arkansas Jobs website and see where we have current family service worker positions um, posted. Um, over the last year, we implemented something called graduated caseloads and did a, a new training system so that we want to make sure that our workers are getting um, the proper training and are not getting dumped with 50 and 100 cases, but they're getting cases as they learn the system. And so hopefully they'll be more equipped to really handle cases after a year. And that was one thing. It's been a couple of years ago uh, when the legislative branch kind of jumped in knee deep on all this stuff that the training that the DCFS workers, that was one thing that was identified that was lacking. Um, and and there was actually a revamp of the training process itself. And so that's been completed or is the are the new materials and the new approaches out there now being taught to the new workers that are coming in? Yes, we went live with that new training, January, uh, I'm sorry, July 1, 2017, and it's now a combination of classroom and online training. And in addition, there's modules or uh, core competency so that you're focusing on different areas of work with the family service workers. So we're still in an evaluation process. It's still very new um, because we really don't expect for a worker to be fully competent until that year mark. And I think that was one of the problems, too, was that workers were actually getting the training, but they weren't actually getting the experience in the field. So they sat in the classroom, got the training, and then they got dumped out in the field with a high caseload. And as a result of that, that created some of the turnover, but it also created some bad results, you know, as far as dealing with the foster parents and the kids and the situations. Uh, so I think that is one thing that's important to note is that that model is being changed to be more realistic so let me let me kind of bring in because i know you got to go here in a minute but there are complaints about dcfs okay you catch it in news and and the thing is one one bad event is going to make it in the newspaper and that becomes the focus and kind of erodes the good that's being done but being realistic when people have issues with dcfs workers and when they feel that they need to get that communicated to where it gets your attention as the director what's the process so people can say hey this is a problem this is the problem i'm having this is the person i'm having the problem with and what can be done about it understanding there's two sides to every story but how does it get to your level so you as a director can make the changes that need to be made. And I'll tell you, most day, well, not most days, but a lot of days I feel like that's what I do is field and look into cases and concerns. But, you know, I really encourage you that if you are having an issue on that local level to first reach out to the county supervisor and the area director first. And if they are not responsive, though I have, I have a lot of faith in my area directors, there's 10 across the state, they do a good job. But if you're still not satisfied with the answers or that your case is properly being looked into you can always reach out to me um, people email me pretty regularly and i have um, staff that look into those issues and concerns and one thing too you know when this all started what i would say started three or four years ago governor had just come you know on the job um you know we as a legislative branch were jumping into you know the issues and, and turning the apple cart upside down and everything um that people need to understand citizens need to understand 
that they can go to their legislators as well. And if, and if it's a real issue that you think has risen to the occasion that you're not being dealt with properly, and that, like I said, two sides to every story, but you can't approach your state representative, you can't approach your senator, um, because that is one of the things that we as the administrative or the legislative branch is, you know, we do our job as legislators, and there have been times where you have taken calls from me and, you know, and, and given attention. Uh, so that's one thing the general public needs to know, that if you don't feel you're getting uh, the support you need or the response you need from the county supervisor or the area director, you do need to contact your legislator. Because at the end of the day, I think the one thing we want is what's the best safe environment for the kids. That's right. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, we live in a very screwed up society that's contributing heavily to the problem um, and it's it's going to take more than a law to change that. It's going to take a change of the hearts. That's right. So. That's right. All right. We're going to take a uh, – Russ, we take a quick break. Be all right. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and finish up the hours. you want to call in, you can call in 501-823-0965. Dave Ellswick Show being hosted by Kim Hammer, state representative today with Misha Martin in the studio. Hey, good afternoon. Kim Hammer filling in for Dave Ellswick this afternoon. Uh, if you want to call in and talk, one of the things that we uh, were kind of consumed with the conversations with JR and with Misha Martin, the director of DCFS, a bit ago. Uh, but one of the things I asked you to consider about is what you see as a glaring example of the hypocrisy that exists uh, within just the general scope of the general public today. When you look at uh, the political world and some of the examples of hypocrisy that happens, or you look at the media, uh, the way in which they want to condemn on one side, but then they want to turn around and just kind of turn a blind eye uh, to some of the other things that happen. Uh, what you see is a, a, a glaring example of some of the hypocrisy. Uh, just with the, at 4 o'clock or a little after 4 o'clock, we come back from the break. Uh, we are going to have Rachel Hubbard, who is one of the uh, home house parents, one of the uh, directors of Second Chance Ranch that was mentioned earlier on the program to talk about what Second Chance Ranch does and how they add to the environment of the foster parenting uh, scenario with dealing with the foster kids. Uh, a couple things just to kind of give you a, a thought. I want to remind you that coming up this Saturday at Conway at the Expo Center out on Highway 64 will be the car show that Dave's been talking about. Uh, along with Joe from uh, Joe's Garage and Duck from down at Duck's Garage uh, on the classic car show that's going to happen down there. Public will be able to access it from 10 to 2, and all the proceeds are going to go to the Ronald McDonald House. When we go back to what Jr. and I were talking about with regard to uh, school safety, uh, I think the want to emphasize one of the points is that what we want to make sure we have is a safe environment for our kids to be able to go to school. And one of the things that was brought out in a committee meeting the other day is when we think about school safety, we kind of get focused on just the building once the kids are in it. But there's so much more to that. You've got the school events as far as the sporting events and all the things that happen after school hours, of which generally there's a presence of the police there. And when the general public knows an event like that goes on, they understand that the police are going to be present, so it's a deterrent. And kind of like what was mentioned about one of the schools, how that they have signs that are posted uh, that says, you know, that some of the faculty is armed. The question that a person who comes in seeking to kill somebody or to kill students or teachers, you know, they have to ask themselves the question, which one is it, and do the guessing game. When we think about school safety, uh, one of the things we need to expand is that it doesn't happen just within the building itself, but you have the transportation of the kids, both when they're getting on and off the school bus and while they're on the school bus. Add to that the scenario of kids within the school system 
that are just being kids, and it just makes for a difficult situation. The one thing I think the general public, I would want you to know as a legislature and a legislator, and I think all the legislative branch working in conjunction with the administrative branch is that we want a plan that's going to be best for the kids, be best for the parents, be best for the teachers, be best for the school administrators, and be best for the bus drivers and everybody else because we want our kids to go to school in a safe environment. Part of the contributing problem to that is that people don't think the same way today like they used to think when I went to school. And, yes, I'm a byproduct of that generation that when I went to school, the kids showed up and they had the guns in the back of their trucks. The trucks were left unopened. A lot of times the keys were left in the truck and the guns were in the racks and they were loaded. It's because the society was a different society in that day and age. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves the question is that the legislature and the administrative branch can't fix all the problems. We can react to the problems. We can try to implement laws and safety measures that will help contain the problem and hold accountable those that have caused the problem. But one thing we need in the process is we need a very clear and a decisive way to punish those people who have taken advantage of other people's just doing what is right. And that's one thing that we didn't strike on today is that you need to hold people accountable for their actions. And I'm speaking to my time of which I was a student growing up. We were held accountable for our actions. If we did something wrong in the classroom, then sure enough, the teacher had the opportunity to hold us accountable. The superintendent, the principal, right up the line, and probably a lot of people that are listening today, you might have grown up in that environment where if you did something wrong at school, long before you got home, your parent already knew it. And when you got home, you were going to be held accountable. And that's the breakdown in society structure today is there's a lack of accountability. There's a lack of discipline. There's a lack of parenting and parents being responsible for the kids that they bring into society today. And we were because held of that, at school, we or, weren't just held accountable by our own parents. I mean, you got it double because you got it. If you didn't get it at school, you knew you were going to get it at home. But if you got it at school, you also got it at home. And did you appreciate it when you got it? Every day. Maybe not at the moment that paddle was coming across you, but you but eventually. I, hey, look, it, it made me understand that you follow the rules. And rules were there to be obeyed, not to be broken. For your protection. For protection. I'm just curious, Russ, did you ever have a paddle come across your backside that had holes in it? you talking about a pickleball paddle. Yes, yes sir. Yes, I did. Okay. Okay. So Coach th- Poole over here at Forest Heights Junior High School. Say again? Coach Poole over at Forest Heights Junior High School. And left an impression in more ways than one. Yes. So that that is part of what I'm talking about, that as legislators and as – and the governor can speak for himself, we want that safe environment, but also we have to work together as a society to change the culture – that we have in place now because it is that culture that we have in place now that is not addressing the problem or stopping the problem but is perpetuating the problem and carrying it forward into the future and so you know with that being said when we talk about this let's make sure that we remember that that there needs to be a standard of accountability and people that stand in the way of trying to put into place a standard of accountability are the ones that are contributing to the problem. Thoughts, Russ? My, my grandmother told me to go out and get a hickory switch one time, Kim. Yeah, I came back with a 
about the size of a Harry Potter wand. She went out and cut her own switch. And they were proficient in the art of knowing how to wrap it around the leg and get you on one side and bring it back across on the other side. And the thing about it was, that was not abuse. That was discipline. You know, abuse is taking advantage of your size over somebody else and and losing control of yourself and taking it out on that on that child. Discipline is trying to show them that this is right, this is wrong, which goes to the problem of society and culture today. It's kind of like the Bible says that, you know, in the, in, in the Old Testament days, one of the problems they had uh, whenever Israel got in problem was it says that everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. And, and we've got to get back to that standard of knowing what the truth is, defining what right is, and then building around it instead of trying to change that which is right. All right. You hang on. Uh, when we come back, we should have Rachel Hubbard, who is with Second Chance Ranch. Uh, she'll be able to contribute to that conversation because they receive kids into their home out there, and we're going to have a conversation when we come back with her. Y'all come back and join us. Hey, good afternoon. You're on the Dave Ellswick Show, listening uh, to Kim Hammer, state representative, filling in for Dave today. Gone to uh, enjoy his granddaughter's graduation out of state, so we want to uh, wish him well, wish her well in her future endeavors as as well. So if you want to call into the show this afternoon, you can call into 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. A quick reminder, uh, we're going to have uh, Rachel Hubbard join us in just a minute from Second Chance Ranch, talk about uh, what they offer in the way of helping children that are placed into foster care and, and the uh, home environment that they create and have created over a period of years. Uh, this weekend, we want to remind you that there'll be the car show at the Conway Expo Center, which is on Highway 65. I believe it's east out there in Conway going toward Valonia. Uh, it is all for the purpose of supporting the Ronald McDonald House, a great organization that provides to the needs of family when their children are in children's hospital, gives them a home environment to stay in. And so if you're out in that area or want to make a day trip and enjoy uh, a good day supporting a good cause, plus looking at some really good classic cars uh, be out at Conway at the Conway Expo Center this Saturday. It's open to the public from 10 to 2. Cars can be checked in at 7 o'clock if you wanted to do it. Uh, you didn't get pre-registered. You can still bring your classic automobile out there and get it checked in starting at 7 till 10 o'clock. Joining us by way of radio today, uh, I'm sorry, by way of phone, uh, because I believe she and Billy are off on some personal time, so we appreciate uh, Rachel calling in today to the show, is Rachel Hubbard with uh, Second Chance Ranch, and I'm going to let you, Rach, uh, you, Rachel, tell a little bit about what Second Chance Ranch is. I know you've been on the program before, but it's been quite some time, uh, number one, and we want to get updated as far as some of the changes that have occurred uh, with your facilities out there. So welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show this afternoon. Why don't you start off, Rachel, by just telling folks what Second Chance Ranch is. Oh, I would love to. Thanks for having us on today, Kim. Um, so Second Chance Ranch is a foster care ministry. We have six homes that are home to children in foster care. Um, each of our homes has between four and seven either kids or teenagers that live there. And then we have a mom and dad that live in the home with those kiddos. And it's just um, each home is like a little family. And so our goal for the last 13 years has been to not only give children in foster care like a safe place to heal after the abuse and trauma that they've been through, but also to give them a family 
to give them somewhere that they can put down roots, somewhere that they can celebrate holidays and, and have somebody help with their homework and just do the little things, you know, eat dinner together around a table that so many of us take for granted. We're talking about kids who haven't had those things ever in their entire life. And so that's what Second Chance Ranch does is we become family to, to these children in foster care. So how long has Second Chance Ranch been out there? Refresh my memory about when y'all first started. It's been a little over 13 years that, um, that the ranch has been in operation. Now, y'all are located out 298. And for those of you that don't know 298, you just envision this. You take a snake, you hit it, and you turn it loose. And that's pretty much what describes Highway 298 to get out there. And I remember at one event, uh, one of your girls was uh, talking about riding in the backseat of the car. And I think it was the foster care uh, you know, worker that was taking her out there. And she really thought, based on where you were, uh, that y'all were taking her out there to, to, I think her words were, to kill her or to get rid of her because y'all are way out in the middle of nowhere. So tell them a <laughs> well, little bit. that's what I thought. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the you, first you know. time I went, too, I thought the same thing. So <laughs> it but, is. We, ha- we have two campuses. We have one that's way out down Highway 298, kind of in the middle of the woods, and we have four homes there. And so it's just, it's it's a... It's an escape. It's a safe place out in the middle of nowhere where you can just kind of get away from everything and and start to heal. Um, Even though our kids do go to school, you know, in town, as we call it, and all that. So it's not totally isolated, but it is just a nice, peaceful place kind of separated from things. And then our second campus is right in the heart of Bryant, um, kind of in near Reynolds Road, kind of in that area. Um, And we have two homes on that campus, and those are for our older kiddos. Now, uh, the, the, they call it Second Chance Ranch because it's it's in the style of a uh, a western town. Uh, just to kind of give people a little bit of an envision, you're going down a gravel road. And what is it off 298? About five miles back through there. It is, yes, yeah. sir. And when you pull up, it looks like you've walked onto the scene of like an old western movie or something like that. But you know, we couldn't have kids just pulling up to some gray building. You know, it had to be. We knew it needed to be something special. We knew that the moment that they stepped foot on that campus, we wanted them to see, wow, this is this is going to be pretty cool. This is going to be something different than I've ever seen before. And we wanted it to be an exciting, like, cool thing when they pull up and see something. And so it looks it looks like something out of a movie, you know, but it also symbolizes kind of a time where our community was just a little bit different, you know, where faith was at the center of everything and and everybody sat out on the front porch and just visited into the evening without worrying about crime and and everything else, and it just it just symbolizes so much peace, you know, which is what these kids are looking for. Now, they they come into the the kids at the Second Chance Ranch come into school in in Bryant, isn't that correct? So, as far as their schooling and the education that they get, uh, I, I know that on on some cases that the kids have really actually caught up uh, in their schooling because they you know a lot of them move from school to school or they're in a very unstable home environment so the structure and the fact that they're in a stable environment uh they they actually transport into bryant to to get their education is that correct they do yes they go to school just like um you know most of their peers do they go uh, a lot of our kids go to bryant school district and then we have some at arkansas christian academy as well and so we figure out which school environment would be best for them and that's where we get them plugged in at I think one of the things that's cool is y'all do a, uh, I know y'all do an annual event where you, you know, kind of recognize some of the kids that have had some major achievements. And it's always impressive 
for those that get up and tell their stories. Because uh, one thing that's neat is you're not only helping them to adjust into, uh, you know, some sense of normalcy, but you're teaching them the responsibilities of how to manage money. I remember one particular story, I think it was a couple of years ago, about the girl who had, you know, gone to work and she had actually saved up her own money and paid cash for her own car. And she and she hadn't even graduated high school yet, or she was a senior about to graduate. So as far as the life skills that you teach them, uh, how is it that when you take a child that's coming from a broken home or has been removed, you know, from the parents' custody, what is it that all that goes into developing that child to kind of get them straightened back out on the road to be successful and productive to society? Well, there's a lot, a lot that goes into that because our kids are coming from, you know, environments where one, poverty has been a way of life for almost all of them for generations in their family. Um, Most of them, you know, have have depended on on the system or whatever in order to just get their basic needs met. A lot of our kids, you know, I hate to say it, but they come to us and they think it's normal to, to find your dinner out of a trash can. And it's just, it's really hard, hard stuff that they've been through. And so we want to teach them. We want to help them heal from abuse and neglect and all of that first and foremost. But, but also we want to teach them to not repeat the cycle. We want them to break out of that. We don't want them to ever not know where their next meal is going to come from. And they've got to be empowered to make that happen because they don't need to live in poverty forever. And so that is one of the hallmarks of our program is is learning to get a job and save your money and buy a vehicle and all of that. Um, so that's that's what all of our kids do. When they turn 16, we start um, having them find a job. And so they get their first job at 16, and they save 75% of their income um, until they're able to buy a vehicle debt-free. So all of our kids, before they leave our program, if they choose to leave when they're 18, and we welcome them to stay longer than that, they can stay till they're 21. But if they choose to leave at 18, um, you know, like some 18-year-olds do, oh, I'm ready to get out of mama's house. And, and so that's where they're at sometimes. They're ready. You know, they have a vehicle. They have money in the bank. They've had a job for two years. They know how to work and to save and all of that. And so um, we can't expect our kids to not repeat the same things that have been done to them if we don't give them some tools to break out of that. Now, as far as um, as far as the the kids that you get what's the minimum age group you mentioned the upper side is that they stay to 21 and and if they're in that older age bracket they're going to be in the two homes that are in bride is that correct right yes yes okay. sir because we want them to have that access to get to and from their jobs and to go out with their friends and things like that so we don't want them way out in the woods to where it's kind of hard to do those those things that are so important to 16 or 17 year old kids yeah, our youngest, um, we normally focus mostly on teenagers because, just to be honest, that's where the need is. It's hard to find foster homes for older kids in the system. Um, but our youngest right now is eight. And um, usually when we get ones that are, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, that, that's because we're trying to keep a sibling group together. And so um, for our younger ones, we usually have their older siblings with us also. Now, you just built a new home, if I remember right, and that's your sixth home that you have out at Second Chance Ranch. Is that correct? We have six total between the two campuses, yes. And we've opened a new home about every two years is kind of how it's averaged out since since we began. Okay, when we get ready to come back, uh, I want to talk to you about 
the, the, the type of parents that you get in these homes and, and drill down for just a second about, uh, about their commitment and some of the challenges that they face. And when we come back from the break, that's what we're going to talk about. We have Rachel Hubbard, uh, who is with Second Chance Ranch. And if you want to call in and ask questions or contribute to the conversation, you call into 501-823-0965. This is Kim Hammer, State Rep, filling in for Dave Ellswick on the Dave Ellswick Show. Hey, welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. Kim Hammer, State Representative, filling in for uh, Dave, who's off watching his granddaughter graduate. We've got Rachel Hubbard with Second Chance Ranch uh, calling in. And Rachel, appreciate it. And, and Rachel and Billy, your husband, are actually off on some personal time from a very uh, demanding ministry. And so we appreciate them uh, just kind of hitting the pause button for a minute and joining us, uh, kind of tying in with uh, Misha Martin, who we had as director of DCFS uh, that was on in the segment before. And so, uh, Rachel, we appreciate you coming on and joining us today. Uh, tell me about or tell us about the parents that could make the commitment to be the home, what do you call them, house parents? We call them house parents or foster parents. Um, we kind of go back and forth, either one. And I'll tell you, Kim, they're the best people you'll ever meet in your life. Oh, my goodness. They are so committed. You know, they they have to decide that they're going to live kind of a different lifestyle than what most people would live. Um, the, the pay isn't, you know, super great, just to be honest. It's ministry pay. And and so they kind of give up their kind of everyday life and they move out to into one of our homes and take in four to seven teenage kids and, and decide that they're going to love them just like they're their own. And one thing that I always say when I interview people is I say, um, you know, if you're going to do this, you have to be willing to treat these children that I'm going to place in your care exactly as you would treat your own children. Anything you would do for your kids, I expect you to do for these kids. And these are the people that say, yes, I, I, that's what I want. I want to do that. I want to make these kids feel like they're my own. And so it's it's hard because we've got kids who, you know, have been hurt by everyone that they were supposed to be cared by. And so you can imagine they're a little jaded when they move in with these foster parents that are saying, oh, I love you. I'm going to take care of you. And it's like, you know, kind of prove it to me is, is where is where our kids are coming from sometimes. And so we need we need couples that are just committed to walk through it and to be there no matter how they how the children respond to it. There are good days and there are bad days. And, you know, sometimes our parents feel like they're rocking it and doing a great job. And other days they feel like failures. But that's that's kind of parenting, you know. And uh, so they're just they're just really special people who are willing to set aside kind of a normal lifestyle, willing to love kids who most of the world would consider unlovable. And um, and I'm just real proud of them and thankful for them. So how many of your house parents have kids of their own that are out there? So they're having to deal with just the, you know, the normal demands of their kids and then they've expanded their family to take in other kids and the blended effect that exist within one of the homes because i could imagine that that's kind of like pulling double duty uh so oh, it is yeah at least about half of our parents have biological children of their own and so that's a whole nother thing that they have to consider because most of our um, parents that have bio children their children are younger than the teenagers in the home and so they're bringing their children into an environment that's very uncertain 
where they'll, you know, get close to kids who will then leave and where they'll be around older children who've had much different life experiences than these little kids have had. And um, so we worry, you know, all of our parents, they worry about influences and they worry about balancing enough attention for their kids and the foster children and, and treating everybody equal. And it's I'm, just to be honest, it's kind of tough. It really is, but it's very rewarding at the same time, and I think 100% worth it, and they would all agree with me. And so so the kids that you receive, uh, you're getting them from DCFS um, or through the DCF system, uh, and and that's how they they arrive with you. Correct. So when a child gets ready to leave, and, and Second Chance Ranch is just one of several in the state, uh, that right. provide the same that provide the same service, um, right? And and so when a a child will stay there until either they can be reunified, reunified back into their home, or they are adopted out, or they just remain there until they age out. Are those the three avenues that once you get a child, that's that's the only three choices there are? Exactly right. Exactly right. Now or. There could be an instance where a child is, is damaged and maybe they're suicidal or they're thinking of hurting others where they need an intense level of care, like a hospital stay or something like that. But um, so that that's kind of the those options, you know, is kind of how it plays out. So a lot of times it has us getting really close to kids and then having to say goodbye, you know, a year later or something like that. And that is that's hard. I'm just be really real. This past weekend, we had to say goodbye to one of our one of our girls, and I laid in my bed and cried until I threw up. I mean, it was just, it's hard when you pour so much into them, and you want them to be adopted. You want them to be reunified with their families. That's a good thing, but, um, man, when you love somebody and you just pour and pour and pour into them, and but you know it's only temporary, it kind of, it takes, takes some special parents to be willing to do that, so. Now, when when a child leaves under what I would consider, you know, a great uh, end result that they're going to be adopted to have their own family, uh, y- y'all can't have or can you have any further contact with that child or does it terminate at that point? No, we can. And that's the good thing is we like to partner with our adoptive families. And so a lot of times they're calling us and saying, oh, this child's has this behavior that's going on and I I think they're lying to me, you know, or whatever it is. How did y'all handle this? And so we form an awesome relationship with our adoptive parents. In fact, just last weekend, we had um, a brother and a sister who would adopt, who were adopted from our program, come back just to hang out with us for the weekend and spend the weekend. And so we keep in close contact with them and, uh, and offer support to those, to those families as that transition happens. Okay. So tell me as far as what, um, what are some of the needs that Second Chance Ranch and other places like Second Chance Ranch has? I know you just can't, you know, put it out there on the Internet. Hey, we're looking for, you know, house parents. I'm just curious, how do you go about the process of finding the house parents so that you know that you get the right ones so you don't get the wrong ones in there that are going to, you know, contribute to the demise of the children and the operation? You know, that's probably our biggest challenge, honestly, is recruiting really good quality people and keeping them fired up and able to keep serving for a lot of years. 
um, because it does take a special, unique person. And this is somebody that we're trusting our kids with. You know, it, it has to be, it's not a regular job interview. You know, this is, this is a big process. And so that we all, we're always looking for couples who want to come and serve and who want to be a part of what we're doing. And, of course, we look for couples who are high energy, who are um, committed and passionate about the ministry that we do, who have a really high moral standard, who can set an excellent example for our kids. Um, and so that, you know, that's a, that's a big need of ours, honestly, is to find the right foster parents to come and join our mission and to take care of our kiddos. All right. We're going to have to take a break. If you want to call in, 501-823-0965. This is Kim Hammer, State Rep, sitting in for Dave Ellswick. Hey, good afternoon, Kim Hammer, State Representative, back with you on the Dave Ellswick Show. And uh, remind you again about the car show coming up this weekend in Conway at the Conway Expo Center to support the Ronald McDonald House. want to encourage you to get out there and support that cause. On the line with us today is Rachel Hubbard. Uh, she and her husband, Billy, are actually uh, getting some R&R from their duties at the Second Chance Ranch. And so they've taken a brief moment time out to join us uh, by way of phone today. And appreciate that very much, Rachel. And uh, tell Billy, appreciate uh, giving up some of your personal time there. The uh, When you've got four homes out at Second Chance Ranch, two in Bryant. And, and one thing I wanted to focus on before uh, we wrap up our time with you uh, is about the aging out process of kids. And when it comes to the aging out, um, I think you're familiar with that term. My understanding is those are kids that have reached the ceiling as far as being in the foster care program under DCFS, and they have yet to be adopted by anyone and they reach the age of 18. Now, if they stay in school, they can they can continue to receive support. But if they exercise that option, you said a while ago about, hey, I'm 18, I want to get out of the nest and all that stuff, then they're pretty mm-hmm. well just cut off at that point and, and left to fend for themselves. Am, am I correct in that interpretation or straighten me out if I'm wrong on that? Well, it, 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 that is basically correct. But I will say, I mean, they have access to a lot of support, at least at least financially and, and in that regard, um, through the age of 21. Uh, but a lot of times they choose to walk away from all of that. And so it's not, there's not really a really tight set of guidelines that they have to abide by in order to keep getting supported and to stay a part of the foster care program. A lot of them, it's it's more of a mental thing of, you know, I'm 18. I don't want anybody having any say-so in my life whatsoever anymore. I don't want any accountability. And they want to be able to say, finally, I'm out of foster care. They just, they want to. And so a lot of times they will walk choose to walk away from their benefits um, just so that they can kind of have that mental freedom. Well, and I, I'm just stepping out on a limb here about to show my ignorance i think maybe contributing factors uh the stigma that might go along with that that once they you know if they can get off into adulthood they don't have to be identified or acknowledged as being in the foster care system which you know even for a child that's 18 in a you know well-structured home that hasn't been placed in foster care that's that's kind of the growing the wings wanting to get out of the nest kind of thing i want to get independent now from underneath but to but it to is. have that that additional attachment uh, might motivate them. So I guess if you can get them earlier and kind of deprogram or debrief them before they reach that spot, do you have pretty good success with the kids that turn eighteen as far as you know being able to impact their decision? That look, you need to think about this before you make that decision, or how does that play out on the averages? 
We do, absolutely. Um, as, as long as they can come to us in enough time that we can build attachments with them and build a good relationship and some trust and all that, then um, a lot of times they're willing to to stay with us even years past turning 18. But we have, like, a an apartment that they can live in. And so, like, they don't have to live with parents. They don't have to be right under our roof. We give them a lot of freedom, a lot of, you know, just being on their own, but we're here if you need us kind of thing. And that seems to have been really successful. Um, they do have a little, some accountability. You know, sometimes you got to shake them and say, listen, this is, this is a terrible idea. We've got to talk this through. But um, I think once if they come to us early enough that we can build a trusting relationship with them, then um, a lot of times they'll choose to stay with us even past that 18th birthday. And that's what we want because we want to continue to be able to support them. Okay, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to go down a list of contributing factors that I've written down that I think are, you know, breaking down our society. And if, if society gets broken down by that, I mean it implodes from the inside out. Um, which we wouldn't be the first to decide to do that. Unfortunately, history is you know littered with laundry and trash of nations that have imploded because they had a breakdown in society. And I want to list for you what I think are some contributing factors to that. And as I as I share them with you, I'd like you just kind of give us some insight if you agree with that statement that I'm going to make. But then if you do, how do you see it in the lives of the kids that you receive? Because I think part of the problem we are dealing with as a society is that we have uh, parents who are not exercising good parenting skills and i'm going to go out on the limb and you know just people just have to respond to it if they don't agree with it we have people that Mm -hmm. are having kids that don't need to be having kids because they're not responsible Mm -hmm. enough for their own actions and they are creating a generation and raising a generation uh, that seems to be expanding on every lap around the globe Um, and and as a result of it we are having to step up and do the job that parents are supposed to be doing. And and one of the evidences or some of the evidences I see spill out of that is, first of all, uh, just a general lack of respect for authority. How much does that play into the kids that you receive into your care? And is it a contributing factor or not? Oh, it's a huge factor. And it is a huge thing to have to overcome because our kids, well, first of all, there's two two factors. One is a lot of them have been raised in environments where they're taught to disrespect authority, where they're taught a distrust and a hatred towards law enforcement or um, school officials, things like that. So that's, that's the first problem that, that these kids are suffering from. They're kind of taught and modeled a poor respect for authority, as it, generally speaking, with children in foster care. And then the second issue is that the, the parents and the adults who are supposed to be caring for them and had authority over them really, really severely let them down. You know, they taught them that, um, you know, that they couldn't be trusted. The authority was a dangerous thing um, because of the abuse that our kids have been through. So they have learned to not only disrespect authority, but not to trust it also. So it's, I think it's a twofold problem with kids in foster care, what they're taught and what they learn for themselves unfortunately because of the family authority figures in their lives well that's part of the breakdown is they they have been raised to disrespect authority because those that are and and listen i just make sure there's no misunderstanding about anything i'm not trying to label we're talking on the subject of foster kids because that's the world that you live in that's the world that 
that uh, sure. you know Misha is director over. Uh, but but this isn't a problem that's just limited to foster kids. In fact, if anything, it's a problem that's kind of gone you know nationwide. In the is Certainly. that there's a lack of respect for authority that is being created. And you know when I was a kid growing up, I don't know how it was in your house, but we had mm-hmm. great respect for authority. Then that began with our parents because our parents had great respect for authority. And that was passed down to us. And there were consequences if you didn't show respect for that authority. Uh, second one is this, the, the lack of accountability for your actions. I see that as a contributing breakdown to society today uh, with the with the lack of accountability that, yes, I did it. I'm going to own up to it. I'm going to take my licks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my punishment. Do you experience that in dealing with any of the, the kids that you receive your way? Oh, certainly. Um, we've we've had a child caught on video, and we show them the video of what they were doing wrong, and he said, no, that's not me. And we said, this is you. We're watching the video. So there is definitely um, a theme of not taking ownership over actions and not being provided any accountability. In fact, that's one of the things that our kids struggle the most with when they come to us is, if they make a poor choice, they, they receive a consequence for that when they're with us, you know, and um, and they don't even know what to do with that because it, they have never been held accountable before. And but what, what accountability does is it teaches kids what they're capable of. Like, I know that you're capable of making a good choice, and that's why I'm going to hold you accountable when you don't. And so it really is a self-esteem builder, and it's so good. For our kids, you know, it's accountability is that fence that we put around the backyard for our kids because we love them and we want them to play in the backyard, but we don't want them running into the street. So, account, uh, you know, accountability is, is love, honestly, and it's really sad that our kids today don't get enough of it. Do you what's what is the learning curve for when you get a child in and and we're going down this this list I've written out and and just public disclaimer uh, Rachel doesn't know what's on my list, okay? And so I'm just pitching these to her to, to test the waters a little bit to see if the theory is correct. What is the learning curve when you get a child in your home and you have to start bending their mindset back to where it needs to be with regards to, like, authority and accountability for your actions? Can you, and I know it's not a, you know, every child is there by three months, but talk about some of the, you know, the time it takes to get them to where they need to be and some of the contributing factors to that? Sure. Well, the first month is usually what we call the honeymoon, where they act really good and we don't see any of the problems. And then we have, you know, a mess break loose after that. And then things start to even out again. I'm going to say it's about six to eight months before our children start to really kind of understand the accountability that's being provided to them and also start to trust the authority figures in their life. So, I mean, and that's just the very beginning when you very first start to see the tide turning. And honestly, it takes years, you know, if we're talking about changing behavior and getting them truly stable and helping them to heal from the hurts that they've been through. But I think once we hit that eight-month mark, it feels like we're actually at least starting to get somewhere to where we can at least start working on their issues at that point. But I'm telling you, Kim, it's a long road. It's a long road with these kids. What um – what percentage of your kids actually go back to the home out of which they came? Or once they get with you, are they pretty well there with you until they are adopted? I'm going to say it's about 
40% of our kids go back to their um, home with their family. And that, that's a rough number. It changes year to year and that sort of thing. But somewhere a little less than half will go back with their family members. Um, and so, and then about another 40% will be adopted and about 20% will stay, stay in the system with us. Okay. Tell you what, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Dave Ellsworth show. I'm Kim Hammer, state representative hosting for Dave today. And we have Rachel Hubbard who is with us. What, what is your official title anyway, Rachel? I'm Billy and I are the directors at the ranch. Directors of the second chance ranch. Mm-hmm. We'll come back after this break and finish up this segment. Hey, good afternoon. Kim Hammer, State Rep, filling in for Dave. We have on the phone, taking time away from her personal time, uh, is Rachel Hubbard, who's with her husband, Billy, taking some recreational time. She is the director of Second Chance Ranch. And where we left off was uh, we were talking, or I was sharing with you some things that I'd written down that I think are contributing to the breakdown of society. And because we're having a conversation about foster kids, uh, just want to know how many of these identify with some of the challenges, understanding, just so nobody gets too bent out of shape, understanding that these are not issues that are just limited to children in the foster care system. These are issues that are attacking children of all places in life. Uh, first one was lack of respect for authority. Second one was lack of accountability for your actions. And then the, the third one, Rachel, is this, a dependency on others to meet your needs. Uh, do you do you experience any of that or see that as a trend coming in with any of the kids that you work with? Oh, my goodness. For sure, for sure. A lot of times I'll meet with a kid, and the first time we're talking, they're asking me to bomb something, you know. And so that, unfortunately, they've lived a lot of their life with their hand out, just waiting for things to be handed to them. And that's kind of a careful balance for us because – we want to give freely to them, and we want to bless them and make sure their every need is met. But also, we have to teach them an appreciation for everything that's done for them, and we have to teach them to do for others and to do for themselves. And so that's a, a key character quality that we work on at Second Chance Ranch is self-sufficiency and giving to others. So, like, one thing that we do to overcome that is we do this big um, family vacation every year. We take the kids to the beach or San Antonio or wherever, and uh, But we don't just take them. They work all year to earn the money for that trip, and then they get to go together as a family um, with the profit that they've earned. And so little things like that, I mean, it's a hard thing to overcome to teach these kids to not live with their hand out, to be self-sufficient. And so that's something that is at the forefront of our battle as we are battling for these kids' lives because we, we need them to understand that. That's such a key component to a successful society. Uh, next thing, uh, and there's a lot of this in the world, a hateful spirit, uh, just mm-hmm. a uh, there, there, there's a growing um, sentiment for for hate above other options. I think it's you know represented in speech. It's represented in gestures, certainly represented in actions. Um, how much do you have to deal uh, with hateful spirits in in your environment? It's really relevant for children in foster care, um, hate and anger, because, you know, those are much easier emotions to express than sadness or hurt. It feels a lot safer to say, I hate you, I'm mad at you, than it does to say, you hurt me. And so our kids, a lot of times, will resort to that because they're trying to get control over their life. And so they feel like the way to do that is through hate and through anger. But I have something much more powerful than that, and that is love. And so, I mean, every action that we take with these kids, every interaction, every moment is focused around showing them 
that we love them and that God loves them. And uh, it's remarkable to see a very angry, violent child become someone that's kind and loving. But it takes a lot of intentionality to make that happen. Now, you said you've been doing this for 13 years. I'm just curious, have you had kids that have gone through the ranch, have left and have, you know, gone out into life and maybe have recycled back and said, hey, I want to be a house parent or, hey, I want to I want to give back uh, to that which was given to me. Do you get a percentage of kids that come back like that? We're start we're just starting to see that a lot more now because our kids are getting older um, and so, like, just last week, I have a girl who is 27 years old, and she um, was in the very first group of girls that Billy and I got to foster at the ranch. And she um, called me and said, hey, I just I miss you guys. I want to start, start spending more time with you, and I want to I'm gonna start coming to church with you. So she started coming back to church with us, and then she last week she said, I just I miss being at the ranch. I miss that place. I miss the feeling I had when I was there. So She said, can I start volunteering? And so, of course, we said yes. So she came out last week and spent about five hours just cleaning, just going around the ranch and cleaning and organizing stuff and just being a blessing to us. And so we're starting to see several of our kids as they get older like that. um, that And she's just one of many, you know, that are wanting to come and give back. And so, oh, that is a good feeling right there. That's why we do it, you know. In the preacher world, we'd call that casting your bread upon the water because it comes back. We've got about two and a half minutes. There's a couple things I want to make sure to get said. And just uh, so the end of the hour doesn't come up on us at five o'clock to six, we're going to replay the interview between myself and uh, J.R. Davis with the governor's office. So for all you that are going to get in the car and drive home, you're going to get a listen uh, to that. But I want to thank uh, Rachel for being on the show with us today. She is the director of Second Chance Ranch. Real quick, uh, if they want to contact Second Chance Ranch, how would they How would they find you? You've got a website or what? Absolutely. We have a website, www.2cyr.org, 2cyr.org. And we're also on Facebook, too. So those are both good ways to contact us. Okay. And, it, and if Second Chance is not in your area, uh, I'm sure you can help them identify a place that's in other geographical areas, you know, can reach out to them. Uh, just Absolutely. got a couple minutes left. I just want to go through the list uh, for the audience, you know, that's listening. And appreciate everybody that's joined us on Facebook. Honestly, I forgot about Facebook being on because I listen on the radio, and I hope I haven't done anything for you that are watching that have been offensive. I try to be a good boy today. But when it comes to the breakdown of society, here are some other contributing factors that I think are are playing a part. Number one, we talked about a, a high level of hypocrisy, uh, the hypocrisy that's in the world that says a double standard of I'll do it. You know, it's kind of like a do as I say, not as I do, which is one of the greater forms of hypocrisy that we're dealing with in society. It's okay for me to do wrong, but it's not okay for you to do it, and I'm going to hold you to a double standard. The second thing is the ability to cope with reality. Uh, if you don't have the ability and the basis built in to cope with reality, you're going to have a real problem when you get to the world. And I think you're going to probably act out, to quote the professional terms, as an adult, which is what we're seeing as far as some of the actions of adults in the world. So the importance of a child being taught the reality of winning, losing, uh, sometimes you get what you want and sometimes you don't. And when you don't have a home structure that is going to culture that, then you end up with what we are receiving as a culture of a society, and that has to change. 
the next thing is the destruction of the home or the family unit that we are you know, that we are seeing it destroyed. And we're coming up on the end, the lack of work ethics, uh, the mislabeling of people saying you are diagnosed with this when the reality is this, but we can't afford to tell you what it really is. The concept that poverty is the norm and you have to live in it. And then just the generational bondage where we're raising and bringing kids back in. This is Kim Hammer hosting the show, Dave Ellswick. And thank you for the opportunity. Rachel, thank you for joining us. You and Billy take the rest of the day off and enjoy yourself. And thank you for being with Dave Ellswick show, Kim Hammer State Rep hosting today. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.